Folks, I would invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're going to be straddling a couple chapters tonight and as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. Remember when we've been talking about how Samuel's arrival onto the scene kind of signaled a change in the tone of of the Old Testament. Remember, we've just come out of the Judges, and the Judges was a very dark time in the history of God's people, but Samuel kind of comes onto the scene in this day when there are these evil priests. This evil priest, Eli, and his two sons are doing some very bad things in the temple and, and among God's people. And so Samuel's arrival onto the scene... And the way that God, I don't know, describes what kind of person he is, his, his mother sets him apart. He, he seems to always follow the Lord. He's there ministering faithfully in the temple while Eli's sons are not. There's almost a change in tone. We get the sense that a page has been turned when Samuel comes onto the scene. That maybe the days of the judges, those dark days of the people rebelling and everyone doing what was right in his own eyes, maybe those days are over. Now that there's a, a, a spiritual leader in the temple who's, who's following God and who's leading the people to do the same thing. So there's a, a shifting of gears there. But now, as we approach 1 Samuel chapters 12 and 13, Samuel, if I don't know what it says in your Bible, perhaps there, there are little headings in your Bible, mine calls it Samuel's farewell address. So now, we're led to wonder, what could this mean? This, this man, Samuel, who kind of came onto the scene, and his coming signaled good days, now that he's leaving, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? So why don't we read a little bit and, uh, and see what this change of tone might mean. First uh, Samuel chapter 12. It says this in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said, and I have, uh, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? In other words, he's saying, if you have any charge to bring against me, if I have acted like Eli in any way, would you say so? He's giving them an opportunity to say, have I been a good priest or have I been an evil one? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to the blind uh, to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. In other words, they agree with him. Eli, I mean, I'm sorry, Samuel has not done anything wrong to us. He's walked before us as a priest and he's done a good, faithful job. 
And Samuel said to the people, verse 6, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. There it is again, that sneaky little reference back to the Exodus, right? It just comes up again and again and again. Whenever uh, it seems the Old Testament is trying to make a point about who God is, it always points back to what He has done. The Lord appointed Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And this kind of begins a little brief history, just to remind the people of what they've been through and who God has been through it all. Verse 7, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out because the Lord had said, because to the Lord, they, I'm sorry, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, remember this is just the last chapter, this is chapter 11, when, when Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Listen to this, I have this underlined in my Bible. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King." You hear what he's saying. He's giving them a brief history of everything they've been to, and he reminded them. Remember when you cried out for a king? When your king was supposed to be God, but you weren't satisfied just to have God as your king. You cried out for a king, and God allowed you to have one. But now remember, there were conditions. You having a king, and everything going well with you and your king is going to be dependent on your obedience. As long as you obey... It'll go well for you. As long as your king obeys and follows me, it'll, it'll be all right. But if you rebel and if you forget me again, I'm going to have to come as a good father in discipline again. That's what he says. So Samuel kind of pleads with the people here. He is a spiritual leader among them. Samuel sees the temptations of the people, the, the temptations that they're facing. And he knows that even though God has done mighty works in the past, what their temptation is going to be is going to be to trust in their human king, right? I mean, after all, right after the Exodus, I mean, not right after the Exodus, but after the Exodus and all the mighty works of God, they still wanted a human representative. They wanted to be like all of the other nations, and Samuel knows this. Samuel knows that their temptation will be to look for the security that they can touch, 
They, they want, like we want the, the, the retirement account, right? And, and the good economy and, and maybe the political leaders that we prefer. We, we want the security that we can touch. And Samuel knows that their heart is for this outward kind of security. They want a human king. So what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he establishes his authority to speak. The very first thing he says was, what kind of priest have I been among you? Right? Have I defrauded anybody? Have I stolen anybody's ox? Which I suppose would be like, have I stolen anybody's pickup truck? You know? Have I done anything? Have I been like Eli in any way? Have I used my position as the priest to enrich myself and to defraud other people? Like Eli and his sons did. Primarily his sons. Secondly, he gives them a history of God's faithfulness, as we say. And thirdly, he reminds them that God looks to the heart. His requirements for his people have not changed. You must fear the Lord. Before you had a human king, what were you supposed to do? Fear the Lord and obey him. Now that you have a human king, what are you supposed to do? Fear the Lord and obey him. That part of relationship to God has not changed. How can we apply this? Perhaps there are a number of things, but this is what uh, I was able to um, see in the text. Um, Days of prosperity bring their own challenges when things are going well, don't they? That brings its own set of challenges. In a way... When we are suffering, it might be easy to draw near to God during those days. But in the days of prosperity, when we feel that everything is going well, when we think, hey, we're on top. We just defeated our enemies. We've gotten ourselves a a king. Everything is going well. When we get comfortable, we tend to trust in the security that's right here before us. And God is warning the people here. Yes, I may have accommodated to you a little bit. I may have given you what you wanted by giving you a visible king. But don't get comfortable. Don't think that just because you've reached a new plane and a new plateau that somehow you can let your guard down. Whenever God is generous to us, His generosity... uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm completely misreading what I've got here. Another little sub-point, God's directions for generosity are meant to be, for us, protection, right? So we were having this conversation just a couple of weeks ago in the young adult Sunday school class, and I don't, I've mentioned to you a few times, I get very uncomfortable when I when when I face a passage of scripture and I and I need to talk about money and finances, I probably shouldn't be that way because God talks about money a lot and it's a window into our hearts. You know, someone has said if you look in someone's checkbook, you can find what's valuable to them. So, but it makes me personally uncomfortable um, talking about it. Um, just I guess because of how you know my my generation is very. Um, I don't know, kind of cynical. Oh, as a preacher, all he wants to talk about is my money, you know, kind of thing like that. So it makes me uncomfortable. But when God calls us to be generous with our money, with our time, 
with our gifts, what he's doing is trying to protect us from the problems of prosperity, right? If we were to think that all of our money is meant to be spent on us, then what we are doing is allowing ourselves to live without any kind of pinch of sacrifice. Does that make sense? And so one of the reasons why I think God encourages us to be a cheerful giver in 1 Corinthians is so that we can remain dependent on Him. So that we're generous in such a way that we still have to we still have to trust in Him to provide for our needs. So we say, God, I'm going to give you part of what you've given me so that I can be weaned off of the allure of possessions and of the world. Because I'll be honest with you right now, and I've gotten into this a little bit since I got a little Christmas money. There's this old, out-of-print set of books called the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And they were published in 1970. They're out of print now. It's Charles Spurgeon's sermons. That he, I mean, there's like 44 volumes or whatever. And every now and then you can find them on eBay. People will post them. And that's the only way you can buy them. There's no way to get... You can't get on Amazon and find these things. And people list these books for like $99 a volume. Uh, well, I found a couple just this week for, for like $30 a volume. So this is a deal. So I'm like clicking, you know, submit bid on eBay, trying to, you know, get some dude in Danville, Virginia, has a, a few, which is just right down the road from where my parents live. And he's, he, I got two volumes in the mail from this guy right now. Listen, if I did not tithe, I could guarantee what all my money would go to. I would be on eBay buying Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Series, all of them, you know, and you're like, well, that's not a bad thing to spend your money on. Yeah, but... But it is. Like, if, if, if I, like, I don't know, God has given his directions for generosity so that we wouldn't worship self with our money. That's what he's doing. He's trying to protect our hearts. Uh, secondly, in great moments of spiritual awakening, our need for repentance before the Lord is very clear. Right? I don't know if you, if you ever had the mountaintop experience with the Lord or a youth camp experience with the Lord or, or whatever the case may be. These, these moments of, of God really revealing Himself or maybe good days are happening at the church is really easy during those sweet moments with the Lord to, to, to be aware that I need to repent of my sin. I need to return to the Lord. But what happens on just the normal mundane days? Those are probably 98% of our days are just normal, rote, wake up and go to work, wake up and brew the coffee, wake up and do whatever it is that you do kind of days. We are prone to wander. And so during the normal days, it's almost like Samuel, God through Samuel is saying to the people, listen, you guys are kind of on a track now. You're, you, you think that things are, are going to be normal from here on out, but don't forget the Lord. The need for daily gospel thinking and gospel living and repentance before the God before God is, is new every morning. But thanks be to God, His mercies are new every morning as well. Um, let's look at um, 
Uh, let's see, verses 16 through 25 kind of make that point. Let me show, let, let's, let's just read that briefly before we go into chapter 13. Chapter 12, 16 says this, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord uh, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it had pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord. And serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. There's a lot of ground covered there. He kind of reminds the people that yes, even though God has given you a king, you are not right to ask for it. God has accommodated to you, but he will forgive. Would you pursue God? Pursue the Lord and fear Him. The people, however, what do they do? We're waiting for an answer, right? Because Samuel is kind of departing from the scene. Samuel's about to step off the stage, and so we're wondering what's going to happen. Which way are the people going to go? Are the people going to remember the last words of Samuel? Are the people going to fear the Lord and continue? Or right after this great sermon that he gave, this righteous priest that they've had, and they're thankful for him, and they, he just gave this great sermon, what are they going to do? Are they going to fear the Lord like he said? Or are they going to walk a different direction? Well, at least right now, it seems like they move. Instead of trust in the Lord, they go towards superstition. They go towards superstition. I've included a quote here from Stevie Wonder. When you believe in things that you don't understand, you suffer. Superstition ain't the way, Right? That great, very superstitious. All right. That's not why everyone came to church tonight. Um, So, let's read the first 15 verses here, and that will kind of conclude the text that we're going to read. See how the people go. Instead of toward fear of the Lord, they go toward superstition. Um, there's a little difficulty here in the Hebrew text, but uh, I don't, you know, your, your Bible might bring it out different ways. The good news is there's, there's no, as with any um, textual difficulty, there's no um, doctrinal point that's in danger here. Uh, Saul was you know, a number of years old when he began to reign, and he reigned uh, a number of years and two years over Israel. Um, I don't know what... Um, uh, what your uh, rendering of the scriptures say there, but there's a, a piece in the Hebrew text that's lost dealing with the numbers or an ambiguity there. 
Uh, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. So you think about this little outpost. There's an outpost of the Philistines there. And Jonathan took a group of men and defeated this outpost uh, that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Okay, so this little outpost got conquered. Word got back to the big army of what had happened. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had, been, had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. I don't know exactly what all that means, but if you ever become a stench to anybody, it's probably not a very good thing, right? Um, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So... Um, some of the commentators say that basically what had happened here is that Jonathan, it's not quite clear uh, whether or not, you know, he was, uh, I don't know, if they intended to, to get into this skirmish and to, do, and to kind of spark what could be a, a full-blown war, but that's what happens. And Saul has to respond to this. Saul has to respond to, well, the enemy, we kind of we bumped up into some of their guys at an outpost and we defeated them and they heard about it, so we better get our army ready because some things are getting ready to go down. Okay, And it says this in verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. So they got their folks together. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore. In multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash and uh, to the east of Beth Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Now, y'all know what a cistern is it's just a, a hole where they keep water. I think things would have to be pretty bad in order for you to go hide in a tomb and in a well, right? That's how hard-pressed they were. I love how the Bible brings that out there. When the men saw that they were in trouble, they hid. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So, this is a leadership crisis for Saul. Uh, his son has gone off and conquered a small outpost, and now he's kind of kicked the beehive. And the Philistines are about to come up, and what are his people responding in? They're responding in fear. They're trembling, and it only gets worse. Look what happens in verse, nine, verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So now Saul's got a real problem. His people are going AWOL. His soldiers are going AWOL. He has to wait seven days. He has to wait for Samuel to come and give an offering in order for them to seek God's blessing. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. So Saul didn't wait quite long enough. 
And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, which might be a little... He might be trying to cover his tracks there. So I forced myself. I did what I didn't really want to do. I forced myself, and, and I uh, reluctantly I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. I wonder who that could be. We know because we know the rest of the Bible, but here's the very first reference to David. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So, what do we learn here? First of all, Jonathan defeats the outpost. Secondly, the people come out to join battle. Thirdly, the people realize the trouble they're in. And fourthly, eventually, they begin to go AWOL. The scattering of the people, though, it, it, it means there's a whittling down of the forces. Has this ever been a problem for God in the past? In the time of Gideon, when, when the forces were whittled down, God didn't have any trouble with that, did He? Right? In the very last chapter, in chapter 11, when the, what was it, the, the, the Ammonites? Somebody help me. Was it the Ammonites who came up? Uh, yeah, when the Ammonites came up against the people and God whittled down the forces, was that a problem for Him then? Absolutely not. But now Saul gets all jittery when the people start to get nervous. The people scatter and Saul's like, all right, we got to change plan here. We can't trust God anymore. we got to take matters into our own hand. we got to go away from obedience to God and towards superstition. Maybe God is a bit like a genie in a bottle. And if we just, if we just you know, do the, the sacrifice, then maybe God will help us. But the reality is God tells us how He wants to be approached. God tells us how He wants to be worshipped and obeyed. And when we think that we know better than Him, what we're doing is not Christianity. It's not faith to God. It's superstition. He offers the sacrifice presumptuously. Um, if you want to read, I, I won't read this passage, but it's here on your page, 1 Samuel 10. That is where God told Samuel and Saul how he should do this sacrifice. And so there's the, it's very clear what he should do and, and should not do. But the reality is this, Saul thinks that God could be conjured by a ritual. And if I just have a good enough quiet time in the morning, if I just go to church enough, or if I just tithe enough or something, then God will be on my side and he'll give me the boat or the house or the relationship or something like that. But this is not faith in Yahweh. This is superstition. How can we apply this as we close? Well, first I would say this. Let's not confuse God's discipline with a lack of forgiveness. Right? 
It is possible for, it's possible to be forgiven, but there's still to be ongoing consequences of sin, right? It's possible to be forgiven by God, but to still have consequences for what we did. In verses 20 through 25, it talks about this. It's like, there are consequences for you guys seeking out a human king. I'm going to forgive you, and you can still seek me. You can still relate to me. I'm not going to cut you off. But part of the situation that you're in right now is because of your disobedience in the past. So let's not confuse those two things. And the second is this. God is not pleased with a heart of ritual. He's pleased with a heart of obedience. We've got to be very careful about those two things. Because some people might say, Oh, so, so God doesn't want me to do ritual. That means I don't have to come to church. Or, or I don't have to read my Bible. or something. You know, God's not a God of works. I... There's a difference between ritual and obedience. And the difference is not in the outward actions. The difference is a matter of the heart. You can come to church out of ritual. Or you can come to church out of obedience and worship. You can give out of ritual. Maybe if I give some of my money, God will bless me. Or you can give out of worship and obedience. You can serve the Lord out of ritual. Or you can serve the Lord out of worship and obedience. Many times the action looks the same. But God knows the heart. So I would encourage you, Examine your hearts. Ask the Lord to examine your hearts. Am I serving out of ritual and obedience? The solution is not to not serve. The solution is to ask God to change your motives. Right? That's the difference. Imagine glorying in your spotless church attendance record while having a reputation for impure speech or financial misdealings. Right? Which one do you think pleases God more? The, the checks on the Sunday school box or your heart before Him and how you relate to other people. Imagine thinking that God is pleased with your tithes or your record of teaching Sunday school instead of your heart of contrition. A contrite heart just means a heart that is sorrowful over sin and loves God's forgiveness. It says this in Psalm 51, I'll leave you with this, church. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, let's pray tonight that God would give us a broken spirit, a contrite heart. Let's pray that God would help us to do all the things that we already do, but to do them out of the right heart. Let's pray, and we'll have a, a time of uh, one, one last song of reflection. Let's pray together. God, thank you for how you have given us human examples in the Bible. You've given us pictures in these stories of men and women who have walked faithfully before you and have failed. And Lord, we get to learn from both of those. We get to learn as we see these Old Testament stories of what faithfulness looks like, what failure looks like, but what God looks like when you forgive and restore. God, we're a people who need forgiveness. We're a people who need restoration. 
I pray that tonight we would search our hearts as we listen to this last song and sing the words of it. I pray that you would search out for us our hearts and, and reveal to us any impure way. I pray that you, would, that you would point out to us how we might be doing the right thing with the wrong motive. Or we might have the right motive, but we're doing the wrong thing. God, would you help us to, to obey you more fully because of the word that you, have, um, that you have shown us tonight in 1 Samuel 12 and 13. Thank you for your word, God. I pray that it would do its work here in Trenton, Kentucky, and to the ends of the earth out of the ministry of this church. Would you so bless us? We beg of you, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.